Good evening. Great to see you tonight. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we continue with our series, but we stop here before we finish off in Ephesians. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Now, our Saturday night broadcast is sort of a Saturday night live, a good one, not the bad kind. Uh, for now, I am told, 376 stations on CSN. And here's two new stations to um, um, let you know of tonight. One is in New Roads. New Roads, where's that at? Louisiana. Louisiana, as they say down south, on 91.9. And then Brainerd, Minnesota. On 88.7, would you welcome all of our listening audience tonight? <laughs> Abigail Van Buren has been writing columns, advice columns, for many years in American newspapers, and she's known affectionately as Dear Abby. A few of them I've collected. Here's one that I thought was a classic. Someone writes, Dear Abby, I am in love and I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. Her answer is cool. Dear sir, the only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. Good, yeah. It's about time somebody put it straight. Well, tonight I'm going to talk about some straight issues. Uncomfortable issues to some, things that are hard, things that need to be said. It's about adultery. It's what is devastating so many marriages in this country. I know that next on our list in Ephesians is children and their parents, but I think it's important that we look at this because this is one of the weeds that ruins a marriage, makes a healthy marriage into a very unhealthy marriage. And so I think before we get into raising children and some of these other topics, that we look at this one. Because I firmly believe that one of the best gifts a father could ever give to his children is to love their mother and to show them that he is faithful to their mother. And one of the best gifts a woman could give her children is to love their father and to show faithfulness to their father. Now, you might be listening to this introductory uh, statement and remarks and say, well, I have a good marriage. Everything's good. I don't have this problem. And I applaud you for that, if that's the case. Then just consider this preventative maintenance. I've met a lot of people who said they didn't have a problem with this, only later on to fall because they let their guard down. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It could be that some of you tonight are listening to this here or on radio or this tape or CD will get into somebody's hands who is currently having an affair or considering having an affair. And at this point, you've gotten so good at rationalizing why it's okay. Even perhaps some lame excuse like, 
Well, one person could never really satisfy me. Oh, really? On a TV talk show, a few years back, Ricardo Montalban was being interviewed. And he was known for playing romantic roles in several movies. And they asked him his definition, in his own words, what makes a great lover? His answer is this. It was to the surprise of everyone. A great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman her entire lifetime and be satisfied with one woman his entire lifetime. It is not someone who goes from woman to woman. Any dog can do that. Yeah. And yet, in our culture, we elevate dog-like behavior. We applaud the sexual exploits of musicians or sports heroes or even politicians. Promiscuity is the subject of so many songs. You know that. Movies. You know that. And primetime television. One report by the Media Research Center says during the first one hour, the first hour of primetime television, the incidences of sex outside of marriage occur eight times more often than depictions of sex within marriage. In other words, there's only one unpopular person to be today, and that's a virgin. Someone who would abstain from sex. Oh, that's scoffed at. Oh, that's laughed at as something that's impossible to maintain. C.S. Lewis was right when years ago he said, Chastity is the most unpopular of our Christian virtues. I had a discussion with a guy when I was living in Israel years ago. He was from England. I was sharing the gospel with him. And he said very smugly, he said, You know, I don't think I could ever become a Christian. I said, Oh, really? Why is that, Tony? He says, Because I'd have to give up sex. It's not an issue of giving up sex. It's an issue of giving over sex to the Lord's control. Hello? He invented sex. It was his idea. Pretty good one, huh? God invented it. It's God-given. But because it's God-given, it must be God-directed. Or it will burn you. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. I know a lot of people look at the Bible, having never read it usually, and say, oh, the Bible's full of so many negatives, so many commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. God is so negative. He doesn't want me to have fun. Okay, you're walking down a hallway. You see a sign. Do not enter danger explosives. Now, are you going to look at that sign and go, I can't believe, what a negative sign. They don't want me to have any fun. I'm going in. Boosh! There's a sign for a reason. So that you don't get blown to smithereens. Well, let's look at our text tonight in Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount declares, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right eye or right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, the the obvious thing in reading this passage on the Sermon on the Mount is that sexual promiscuity, adultery, was a considerable problem. Because Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, as old as mankind has been upon the earth, it has been a problem. In fact, obviously it was a major problem, don't you think? It made God's top ten list of things not to do. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in the law of Moses, not only was it in the top ten list, but there were grave consequences for somebody who committed adultery. Do you remember what that was? You know, they weren't just slapped on the wrist. They weren't shunned. They weren't put on television as some hero. They were stoned to death. Now, I'm not advocating that we do that today, necessarily. But what if we did? (laughs) Boy, you'd be driving down the street in this country and you'd have rock piles everywhere, wouldn't you? (laughs) It was a prominent problem. Because the people around the children of Israel worshipped their gods sensually. You know about Baal of the Babylonians. Ashtoreth, the counterpart to Baal. These were gods and goddesses that were worshipped under the groves in the trees by sexual promiscuity. The priestesses or the priests would have relationships with the people who came to worship. And the children of Israel, being surrounded by this, started getting into it themselves. Listen to this quote from the book of Amos. The prophet writes in chapter 2, Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. Now if we move that forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Greek culture was filled with this stuff. In fact, to the Greek mind, sex was just a biological function. It was no different than eating, breathing, sleeping, having sex. It was a biological need that was fulfilled. And so they had their temples. They even brought it into their worship. For instance, in the city of Corinth, high up on a hill was a temple to the goddess Venus or Aphrodite. And they employed a thousand priestesses. I put that in quotes. A thousand women who would come down into the city of Corinth and seduce men into having a little worship service. Sexual relationships. The men would pay for it. The money would be used to fund the temple. In fact, the Greeks coined their own word, eros. It is a word that wasn't used much except in the ancient Greek literature to speak of this physical, sensual love, eros. Hollywood loves that word. Erotic comes from eros. Literally, the word means to grasp. That's very interesting. The idea is coming along and reaching out to grab something to satisfy oneself. I want that. I need that. I'm going to grab it. That's the root word of eros, erotic love. Now today, sexual promiscuity is its a popular sin. The world would call it not a sin, but a vice. We, you know, we, we rename things, don't we? We don't call it adultery even anymore. It's just an affair. It's, it's a popular thing to do, both before a marriage 
sexual promiscuity, fornication, and after or during a marriage. Now, that shouldn't surprise us in one sense, because Jesus himself clearly warned that in the last days, they would be like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom, which had rampant sexual perversion, both on a heterosexual and homosexual level. How widespread is it today? I was asking some of my staff this week, how much counseling do we do in this area? And we discovered that about 80 to 90% of all of our counseling has to do with marriages, and about 15% of that has to do with sexual promiscuity, adultery. According to one poll, one in nine couples who had breakups in their marriages, one in nine said infidelity was the root cause of that breakup. I was looking up in a little book that I've had in my library for some time, written by two gentlemen, James Patterson and Peter Kim. It's a very telling book of polling America. It's called The Day America Told the Truth. And according to their research, they argue that 49% of married Americans, 49%, 1% shy of half, consider having an affair, but only 31% actually do. Also, they said, quote, today, a majority of Americans, some 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs they're having. Nothing wrong. Nothing morally wrong. This is okay. I even found on the internet an agency from the UK called the Alibi Agency for those committing adultery. What they promised to do is provide an alibi to a spouse to cover your deception. Uh, they uh, promised to post invitations to events you'll never attend, to provide booking forms to your house, make telephone calls to your spouse posing as a secretary or a hotel booking agent confirming an event. They can even take calls for you as if they were at hotels, including the caller hearing them trying your room and paging you. Ozzie and Harriet don't live in America anymore, folks. Ozzy Osbourne does, and his family. Ozzie and Harriet, long gone. The Cleavers, long gone. It's a new age. Now, I would love to stand up and say, well, that's the world. The problem is in the world. The problem isn't inside the church, but I would be a liar if I said that. I've been a pastor too long. I've counseled too many marriages. I've listened to too many stories. I've gotten too many letters. And as I said, a majority of our counseling has to do with this very issue. Listen to this from Time Magazine. Among those who label themselves very religious, 31% have had an affair. That's the national average. Christianity Today, if you say, well, that's Newsweek, I can't trust them. Christianity Today polled a thousand of its people at random people who are subscribers. 23% admitted to committing adultery. 45% said they acted inappropriately, which included passionate kissing, fondling, and mutual masturbation. Is there any wonder why there's so many warnings about this throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through? Is it any wonder it's on the top ten list of things not to do? So many have been tempted by it. Many have fallen. Joseph was tempted, didn't fall. Samson, tempted, fell. David, tempted, fell. So this is a considerable problem. 
But look closer at our text. It's a, not only a considerable problem that goes way back, it's, it's a hidden problem. It, at least it begins in secret, covertly. It's a covert problem. Verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks, that's where it begins, at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, lust begins as a secret seed. The heart is the soil where the seed of sin grows. Now, Jesus said something interesting. Whoever, whoever looks, and the word that he chose, the word that he used, is in the present tense. Whoever not just glances, it's not the involuntary glance, it's the voluntary gaze. Think of David. David in the Old Testament walked outside one night and Jerusalem is sort of laddered down, stepped down. You could have a tremendous view. I've been to where his house used to be. And you can see all the homes built underneath it. So he was out there one night checking it out, enjoying the Jerusalem air. He should have been at war. But he was back home. It was nice. And there was a woman on the top of her house, naked. She was bathing. Now David could have said, oh, But David went, oh. (laughs) It wasn't the looking that ruined David. It was the fantasizing. It was the dwelling on it. It was the desire. In fact, it was the decision not to turn away, but to continue to look, to stare, to linger. I get awfully tired of hearing the modern pundits say that fantasy is okay. Like the sex guru, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who for years told people, it's okay, it's all in the mind. If you think these thoughts and you see these things, it's okay as long as you never do them. Well, that's wrong, Dr. Ruth, because the battle is fought, won or lost in the mind. When it enters the mind via the eyes, you make a decision at that point. And fantasies, much research have proven, lead eventually to the actions that are being seen. There's an old axiom that I like to bring up at times like this. It goes like this. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a destiny. See, the eyes take photographs, don't they? There are certain things you remember as a child. And the eyes that take the photographs display them in the museum of your mind. They can be accessed almost at any time. They can be used for comparison with the real world, which is dangerous. And they can lead to other things. I hear guys saying it's wrong. Well, I look, dude, but I don't lust. Oh, you look, but don't... Oh, yeah, I'm just admiring God's creation. Really, do you check trees out like that? (laughs) Whoa, that's a tree. I don't think so. There's a wise taxi driver that once said, He who looketh upon a woman, loseth a fender. (laughs) Well, that's not all you'll lose. You can lose a marriage, you can lose your family, you can lose your integrity, you can lose everything, potentially. In fact, that brings me to my third point, This is a consequential problem. It's a problem fraught with consequences. Look at verse 29. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. I'll get to that in a minute. For it's more profitable. This is what I want you to look at here. It is more profitable. It is better. The net result would be better for one of your members to perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. You know, if you think this is a tough message, can you imagine what Jesus' followers thought or the crowd thought when he was preaching this stuff? Wow, they thought. I can't believe he's going there, they mused. For, he says in verse 30, it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Before you build a wall of smugness, anyone who would be listening to this, considering an affair or having one, and trying to blow it all off, the Holy Spirit's nailing your heart, and you're going, oh, a lot of people do this, they get away with it. Let me give you six consequences that I want you to consider. Six things that can be the result of this kind of sin. Number one, this can damage you spiritually. You say, well, how's that? Well, number one, you lose your peace with God, your fellowship with Him. There's that barrier that you sense between them. Or even worse, Jesus mentions here hell. I think perhaps the point is that sin always has drastic consequences and continual sin that is unrepented of only proves that you are not a Christian. Right? That's what the Bible says. If you say that you're a child of God but you continue habitually live in sin, you're a liar. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 6 or verse 6 chapter 6 verse 9 I'm dyslexic sometimes it says do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God could it be any plainer than that that is the unrepentant person who in an unrepentant, continual fashion does these things, they might say, oh, but I go to church, so what? If you're doing these things repetitively, without repentance, you will not inherit the kingdom of God till there is genuine repentance. So it can damage you spiritually, number one. Number two, it can damage you physically. If you just take it and look at it on the physical level, think of the sexually transmitted diseases that often come. Syphilis, chlamydia, AIDS, to name a few. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 11 warns, Until you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. Even Solomon knew and was aware of the physical ramifications of adultery back then. Number three, it can damage you emotionally. Emotionally. I wonder if you realize the anxiety that comes with deception. When after a period of time you've gotten so skilled at lying and holding back and covering up, great amount of anxiety and guilt comes from that. Now some will rationalize in the midst of relationships. I talk to people all the time who do that. They go, well, it'll be okay. I'll just marry this other person that I'm having an affair with and we'll get a brand new start, man, a brand new start. Well, perhaps... But think about it. Since the new relationship is built on deception, right? You think it's going to be better than the last one or worse? 
All the research would say worse. Think about it. Are you going to trust someone who has habitually deceived their former spouse? Oh, there's a good foundation. Wait, you lied, I lied. Let's get married. We'll start all over. Number four, it can damage your family without question. It, it does damage the family. Damages everything you've built. Erodes trust. In fact, I would say that sometimes that trust is never, ever, ever recoverable. In some cases, I've seen that to happen. And it sets a, an example, don't you think, for children, especially impressionable teenagers, as they hear and see what has happened. You could just ask David that. After he had his little tryst with Bathsheba, remember what happened in his family? You know about his son Amnon who raped his half-sister Tamar? Do you know about Absalom who took his father's concubines and had sex in the open daylight in front of all Jerusalem with them? And it's not just the sex. It's the months and months and sometimes years of deception that the victim, the spouse, wakes up to and realizes, I've been betrayed. All of that deep anxiety. USA Today survey, Fred Humphrey, past president of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, says, quote, experts say extramarital affairs rarely have happy endings. He points out, one half of married couples either divorce or separate when one spouse learns of the other's affair. Others languish over trying to salvage the relationship. He continues, learning about it results in instant pain and anger. There will always be a barrier to some extent. Now let me even paint the worst case scenario in that. Imagine if somebody's promiscuous in a marriage, gets a sexually transmitted disease, passes it on to a spouse. Let's say it's severe enough where both of them die and they leave their children orphans. That has happened. Number five, it damages outsiders. It damages outsiders. You might say, well, it's just between me and her. Oh, no, it's not. The circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. If it's done by somebody in a church, you know what the Bible says, if one member of the church suffers, all of the members of the body suffer together with it. Every obedient believer in a church strengthens the whole church, and conversely, every disobedient believer weakens the whole church. And think what it does to an unbeliever. We talk about wanting to evangelize the world. We need to preach the gospel more, Skip. Preach the gospel. Don't talk about this stuff. Let's hear some evangelism. What about your evangelism with your marriage? Remember, David committed adultery and Nathan the prophet came to him and says, God has forgiven you, David. He has forgiven you. But he said, you have given the enemies of the Lord great opportunity to despise and blaspheme him. Unbelievers are going to look at that and go, oh, these, these are God's people, huh? So why, why do I need to change and become one of them? There's no difference. So it damages outsiders. Sin is the most expensive thing in the world. And especially this one. Hollywood glamorizes it and plays soft music behind it. It's all a lie. It's a lie. They don't show you the fallout. They don't show you the repercussions. It's a big, fat lie. They Oh, it's safe sex. No, nobody's safe. 
It scars everybody. Oh, it's free love. Nope, you pay. Everybody pays. All of those little cute sayings are lies. Number six, and finally, and perhaps I would say more important, it displeases the heart of God. Let me ask you a question. Why is God always the last one considered in an affair? He ought to be the first one. David in Psalm 51, after Nathan confronted him, he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil. You know, if, if God were considered first, if God were brought into every bedroom, the backseat of every car, every dark apartment, if God were considered first, that might prevent some of this. Because purity begins with loyalty to the master. You remember when Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife in the book of Genesis. And her contention is, nobody's home, man. Nobody's here. Nobody's going to see. God will see. How can I do this great evil and sin, he said, against God? So William Barclay writes, perfectly appropriately, sin becomes a crime not against law, but against love. It means not breaking God's law so much as breaking God's heart. That's why we always want to keep our eyes on the Lord. And that's not just a cute little Christian saying. If you're a carpenter, you know that whatever you keep your eye on, you'll hit. If your eye's on the head of the nail, you'll hit it. If your eye's on the thumb holding it, ouch! So you want to keep your eyes on the Lord. Fourth and finally, this is a conquerable problem. It's a conquerable problem. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. Verse 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now you're thinking, that is so gross. I can't believe Jesus said that. What is he, Taliban? (laughs) What is he talking about here? I think that's the intended effect, don't you? That you would read this and it would be so shocking as you think of getting a hand cut off or an eye plucked out. And that's the point Jesus wants to make to us. Sin is shocking to God. It ought to be shocking to us. And we ought to deal with sin radically. You can't compromise with it. You can't sit down and have a little talk with your sin. Well, I'm going to just get rid of it in stages. No, 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 no. It has to be cut off. Now, this is a hyperbolic statement, hyperbole. These are words that are figure of speech, saying we must deal with this radically, and we can. It was Martin Luther who used to say, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can sure stop them from building a nest in your hair. And this problem of sexual promiscuity, and in this case, in a marriage, is conquerable. Let me just give you two quick things as we close tonight. Number one, burn your bridges of temptation. Burn your bridges of temptation, and I'll explain. And number two, build bridges of affection. First of all, burn bridges of temptation. That means, guys, if you know that you're tempted by magazines, don't walk by the magazine rack in the store. Don't get really close to it as somebody's looking at a magazine and go, Oh, that's horrible. That's bad. (laughs) Stay away from that. Cut it off. If there's television shows 
that tempt you, if there are certain movies, don't go. Stay away, says in Proverbs. Remove your foot far from that path. Burn those bridges of temptation. If you are married and you're having, not an affair yet, but let's, let's call it an emotional affair with somebody. You've won somebody's trust. They've won your trust. You guys are just hit it off. Boy, it's like soulmates. Cut it off. Sever it. I don't want to be impolite. Be impolite. I give you permission. Your pastor said, be impolite. Cut it off. Stop it now. Think of Joseph, Potiphar's wife. She was very aggressive. It was just no little light temptation. She grabbed him by the clothes and said, have sex with me. I think he realized, I'm being tempted right now, huh? (laughs) You know what he did? He ran out of there with his clothes in her hands. Now, Joseph didn't say, oh, but that's so impolite. Maybe I could witness to her. I don't want to hurt her inner child. He ran away. That was appropriate. Keep an appropriate distance. Some places you can't go. Some phone numbers, get rid of. Several years ago, I got a very interesting letter from someone who said they attended our fellowship. It was a young woman. She stated her age. She gave her phone number. She just said, I want you to pray for me and counsel with me because every time when you speak on Thursday nights when we had our Bible study, I have lustful thoughts toward you. Would you please call me so we can (laughs) settle this? You know what I did with it? First thing I did, told my wife. Second thing I did, gave the letter to my secretary and said, you call her. Third thing I did is I told all of my assistant pastors. I wanted to get it out in the open and nip it in the bud Right there. Don't be a dartboard for the enemy's fiery darts. The Bible says flee temptation. Flee it. I'm not a wimp. Be a wimp, if that's what it takes. Run away. And by the way, when you flee temptation, don't leave a forwarding address. (laughs) Shut the door completely. Number two, build bridges of affection. You're married. You have a mate. Keep dating that woman. Keep dating that man. Date your mate. You used to open doors for her. Now you shut them on her foot. Don't do that. Open the door for her. You used to send her flowers. Now you're thinking, I'll send her flowers at the funeral. (laughs) Maintain the relationship. Date your spouse. Get away from the kids. They'll survive without you for a few hours. Don't worry. They'll grow up. In fact, even if they have a bad night and cry all night, they'll never remember it when they're 18. (laughs) It won't traumatize them. Spend some good time together. A couple of things you may want to do. Affirm your vows to each other. I dare you to do that. Look each other in the eyes and try to say the vows as much as you can remember them from your wedding day, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, to keep and cherish. Say them in your own words. Another romantic thing you ought to do, husbands, wives, write a letter to your spouse. And in the letter, talk about how much that person means to you, meant to you on your wedding day. Describe the feelings that you had on your wedding day. I know, guys, you might think, well, that's not cool. Oh, it's very cool, man. It is so cool. It will do wonders for your relationship. 
burn bridges of temptation, build bridges of affection, and in building the bridge of affection, date your mate, and I would also add, satisfy each other's needs. The marriage isn't just about you, it's about the other person. Yeah, but they're not doing what I... No, why don't you just decide, I'm going to fulfill my role and be that for her, for him. To satisfy his or her needs emotionally, spiritually, and, yes, physically. That's commanded in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 7, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations, it says. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, that is, after your time of intense prayer, afterwards they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. I'll put it to you in Solomon's words. He said to young man, drink water from your own cistern. And men and women should have those waters freely available to satisfy the mate to show affection. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources, I discovered, tells us that every year, annually, 17,000 deer are struck by automobiles on the state highways in Illinois. 17,000 deer. The head of the agency was being interviewed, and he said most of these deer deaths occur in the late fall. November is the peak month, and he explains why. Listen carefully. He says, in November, these deer are concentrating almost exclusively on reproductive activities and are a lot less wary than they normally would be. Well, deer aren't the only one that are ruined by a drive for sexual activity. People are. And dear Abby was right when she said the only difference between humans and animals is morality. So I guess the question I want to leave you with is, why live like an animal? You live like an animal, you die like an animal. Live like a child of God redeemed on that high plateau of what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I guess it goes without saying that if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, you won't be an adulterer. And if she says, you know, I'm a little concerned about you and that woman that you talk to at church or at the office or on the phone, oh, don't be so jealous. But just say, honey, if that's bothering you, it's over then. It's over. Because I want to love you as Christ loves the church. Heavenly Father, you do love us so intensely. And you've given us, because you love us, warning signs. Danger signs that say, keep out explosives. You do it for our good, Father. And Lord, I know that anyone here who has ever counseled in this area has been saying amen all night long to these truths. So many broken pieces have been picked up. In some cases, Humpty Dumpty can never be put back together again. So Father, we pray that you would save more marriages, more Christian marriages, those in this church, those in churches that are listening across America tonight. Lord, we 
aren't responsible for what the world does. It shouldn't surprise us that sinners sin. It shouldn't surprise us that the world is promiscuous and fills its entertainment with this kind of rubbish. But we're not the world. We're your people. We're your church. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a healthy disgust and hatred for sin. Lord, I pray that men and women would guard themselves because we want to please you. We don't want to hurt your heart. We want the relationship between ourselves and you to be rich and pure and vibrant. So, Lord, we ask for your grace, for your mercy. As we receive this instruction, it is to be received wholeheartedly as any other Bible study, any other sermon would be. And bring repentance, Lord, in these areas, if that is a problem with us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.